0: I'm your host, Caroline Moreau Hammond. You might remember the name Euphemia Russell from season one's episode, Are We Doing It Right? Putting Sex into Perspective. Euphemia is a pleasure educator based in East LA. They're the founder of I Wish You Knew and the author of the upcoming book, Slow Pleasure. They're dedicated to resourcing people with practical pleasure and embodiment tools through coaching, writing, and facilitation. Their approach is based on the fundamental conviction that pleasure is regenerative and essential to health, not just a frivolous indulgence that you supposedly don't deserve. We examine wants and desires, social conditioning, inherited gender binaries, slow pleasure, and the unsexy reality of sex. Our conversation contained so much, and we weren't able to include everything in episode one of The Philosophy of Sex. So please enjoy this long play version of my full interview with the incomparable Euphemia Russell.
1: My name is Euphemia Russell. I'm a pleasure coach, facilitator, and author. And I focus particularly on slow pleasure, gender identity, and supporting people who consider themselves as people pleasers and defaulting to other people's needs and wants and how to center themselves in their bodies and their pleasure.
0: And how would you frame the differences between boundaries, motives, and desires?
1: Hmm. They are big things. And I would say that they're all very different. And also just to name the fluidity of everyone's experiences with their pleasure and boundaries and motives and fantasies that it's not always so clear cut, even though as a society, we often want to boil it down and like have it as a bite-sized, clear cut way. And often how we can venture into binaries and binary language and binary thinking. So I want to preface that when we talk about all of these things, starting with boundaries, we are in what I call like the adolescent age of boundaries, where, of course, we live in bubbles, as we were just talking about, but we often use the word boundaries, and see it as something that can be like a fuck you fuck off, like a stonewalling or a keeping out or being in an impenetrable wall. And the way that I like to talk about boundaries is that it is like a filter. So the idea of boundaries is that they're permeable and that they allow filtering in, they allow filtering out, they allow a sense of ourselves. Often we can be too closed and not let anything in or out, or we can be maybe too open and too porous and not actually sure where our boundaries sit and either over giving or over receiving and feeling really murky in that. Boundaries, I think, is having this moment in our adolescent stage of people using that word a lot and trying to practice it, but not necessarily understanding the nuance with a bit of trial and error along the way. And so I think it's really useful to talk about that because... When it comes to boundaries, motives, and fantasies, I'm like, oh gosh, I think they're all vastly different, but they also can interrelate in a situation. So say, for example, someone might have a motive or like an intention for something where they're like, oh, if we're talking about sex or pleasure with other people, for example, it might be like, oh, I would really like to make out with this person tonight. That's my motive. And it's fueled by my desire to be close to this person. Our motives aren't just our likes or our wants or our needs. They're what's underlying, our sort of underlying desires and what is propelling those wants and needs and desires. And often our motives can be socially shaped. We think like, oh, I just want to have a partner, a long-term partner. That's my desire in life. And maybe the motive is actually inherited beliefs around, oh, when I have a partner, therefore I'm secure, or therefore I'm loved, or therefore I'm desired, or therefore I'm seen as successful to other people. So, motives, I think, are, are even more deep seated. So, this is a long answer because this is a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think motives, that's how I would talk about them. Boundaries is that filter, and then fantasies is a whole other world. Fantasies is your fantasy scape. It's the place that you can go by yourself where no one else can be. It's your secret garden. It's the place that, in my opinion and what I share with my clients, is a place you can go to reimagine new ways of being and feeling. And they don't necessarily ever have to come into reality because maybe they lose their power or maybe they don't actually align with your values in the way that you are in the world. But it's a place of imagination and dreaming that you can choose to be like, oh, actually I do want that to come into reality or actually this can stay right here. As quick as possible, I think that's the difference.
0: Then how would you go about articulating the difference between needs, wants and desires?
1: Mm. So I've just been finishing a book manuscript and throughout the whole manuscript is weaving how to check in with your needs and wants. And I say needs and desires and the way that I explain it very simply is that needs are things that are integral and that might be to survival, but it might also be to things like respect, dignity, safety, belonging. There are social needs as well. It's not just the physical needs of like, often people think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, let's be honest, that's a little warped and, colonial, unfortunately, but it's what you feel is essential to you to be, for you to be able to feel safe and able to connect with others and surviving. And then in terms of wants and desires, I see them as very similar. So I actually say desires, because I think that that adds a little bit more of an oomph to it where people are like, oh, Desires is something that I can potentially long for things. I can yearn for things. It's not just like, oh, I want this thing that's sitting next to me and I'm going to do that. It allows a bit more expansiveness in in that word, in my opinion, and the way that it's being received by others. And the way that I describe desires is what I was saying of yearning for things or desiring things and being able to realize that often your desires – can be a beautiful mirror for greater desires. So if you're like, oh, I wish I could be touched on the arm and held in a way that feels really maybe just like a bit of compressive, reassuring touch, like, oh, that's one small desire and therefore maybe that actually shows me I have a greater desire for comfort or a greater desire to be held. So needs, I would say, essentials social, physical, spiritual, emotional. And then desires are, what do I feel like? What do I yearn for? And so they are different, but they are often interrelated as well.
0: Would you say that often, obviously not in all cases, but desires or wants are driven by sort of unmet needs to a degree? Mm, Not
1: always. Not always. I think yes. There can be a yearning or there can be a way that we want to have our needs met in a roundabout way through our wants or desires. But I think it's also really healthy to desire. And often we have the rhetoric in society or particularly in spirituality of desire being something that we want to banish, that it's bad, it's distracting, same as pleasure. And I think that that overlays that that shame of like, oh, I shouldn't desire things or I shouldn't wish for pleasure because it's a distraction. It's ungodly. It's frivolous. I don't deserve it. And so I think that desiring is a a very healthy thing that doesn't necessarily always relate to unmet needs, but can. Yeah. Do you feel that? What do you feel? I want to hear.
0: I feel it's interesting that often there's this sort of pressure to act on desires Mm -hmm. and the the way we operate. Like if you feel that you want something, we have this kind of attitude that it's like we should make that happen or go Mm -hmm. out and get it as opposed Mm -hmm. to actually sitting in desire, which I think is a really beautiful experience, but unfortunately Mm. something that people are often given the tools to experience. Mm. So I I like the way you talk about it because it holds so much space for that.
1: I think that's a nice differentiating is like, externally expressed desires or internally expressed desires where we can recognize something we desire and potentially we can actually fulfill it in this moment by ourselves without needing to buy anything or have anyone else involved or do anything extraordinary or notable to anyone else the way that you describe that of just like sitting with your desires can be a very beautiful practice
0: and I guess this is sort of related to that in a way is it possible to realize desires that sit outside of Social conditioning, like what is the relationship between those two things? Because that's complicated, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: This is my jam. I love this. I find this like super fascinating. I'm actually studying somatic coaching at the moment, and somatics often people think of as just focusing on the body, but it's focusing on the whole self. And the way that they describe that is like the body, the moods and emotions, the mind, spirit, whatever however you see your full self. And a big part of somatics and the way that I coach in somatics is looking at what have we inherited, how do we gently interrogate that and how do we allow space for our own thoughts and feelings and desires to emerge? Of course, it's impossible to know if we actually have our own autonomous thoughts because often we are constantly reflecting what we see outside us, or of the times, of the culture, but the very simple and also very difficult practice that I offer to people is pausing. And that's why I focus on slow pleasure because it's more about creating choice around pace but around everything else because when you allow even a little bit of space to stop and check in with yourself, check in with your body, feel more embodied, be aware of your sensations, and your sensations are your first language. Being aware of those things can allow things to emerge and for you to say, oh, actually, in that moment, I would have reacted in this way thinking that I desired this, but with pause, even a small pause of a breath or a minute or sleeping on it overnight, you actually can allow space for other desires that maybe weren't heard at first to appear and be like, oh, Actually, the more I gently interrogate that, I realize that that desire feels more aligned to who I am and how I want to be in the world right now, rather than just defaulting to what I've inherited or what I've been told or what I believe. In short, I do think it's possible to realize your desires outside your social conditioning or the influence of the structural forces in society or institutional or family or communities and all the ways that we can be shaped and that it takes practice.
0: If people wanted to begin to think about that, (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what kind of cues could people look for in their bodies when they're in that pause that would help them navigate that? So
1: there are lots of different things in the book, which will be released next year. So we must wait, but there's a whole section devoted to embodied decision-making and tools to do that because it sounds simple and an embodiment or embodied that word is thrown around a lot I feel like it's like trendy and everyone's like I kind of know what you're talking about I think maybe possibly what does that actually mean and so the way I describe it is it's kind of like mindfulness where you're you're aware of what is happening in the moment in your body and in yourself so that might be your moods and your emotions it might be your sensations but it's not necessarily trying to change anything. It's just being aware of what's happening right now. And often when we're stuck in our heads and our minds and busy in particular nervous system states of fight or fight or productive mode, we aren't aware of our bodies. And so it does require a little bit of effort to be aware of in your body and to become more embodied in that moment. And then in terms of your question around embodiment and embodied decisions and practices, there can be various things where, often, as I said, our sensations are our first language. So, before we learned how to speak or interpret what was happening in our bodies, we would experience and feel sensations. So, if you imagine a baby, a baby will be like, Oh, I have these sensations, and therefore, I'm coming to understand and therefore I'll cry to receive attention or whatever it might be in order to serve that need. It's the same as adults where, for example, maybe let's focus on the chest. If you're nervous, there will often be a similar experience or a similar sensation that happens in a particular part of your body. And it's not always that clear cut, but Say, for example, when I get nervous, I feel my stomach go up a little bit and tense. I feel my chest tense in and my shoulders go a little bit round and I feel a little bit smaller. I feel myself and my body contracting in its width and its length and its depth and trying to feel a little bit smaller and noticing those things, taking a moment to notice those things. And the way that I talk about it is doing a little check where you can check your jaw, you can check your chest, you can check your stomach, and you can check your anal sphincters. And these areas are often where we can hold tension or sensation with big emotions. And so maybe it's noticing just checking in with those areas and saying, oh, oh, wow, I didn't actually realize that I felt this way or I had these emotions attached to this decision. And therefore that potentially can influence my answer or my response to this situation.
0: It kind of relates quite nicely to the next question in the sense that something like that is obviously a lot easier to do when you're on your own and you have more time. Mm -hmm. When you're with someone else potentially in, like, or height of Mm -hmm. a sexual experience, Mm -hmm. much So how can we begin to sort of translate that personal more individual experience into a shared experience with however many partners that may be Mm -hmm. and how do we bring that both to sort of a romantic partner but sort of conversations about that Mm. more broad Mm -hmm. with friends family or whoever it might be
1: i always come back to the answer of practicing in the small moments so practicing in the less weighty moments in your life where Often, because of our social conditioning, we can reflect the ways that we would react in in weightier moments or more intense emotional dynamics that might be, for example, having sex with lovers or partners. And so it's all about practicing. When it comes to pleasure, when it comes to communication, the things that we were never really taught and we've all fumbled our way through. We need to build that muscle and that capacity and that practice through repetition and feeling more confident and at ease and centered in those small moments. So that when it gets to the weightier moments, we can feel more centered and comfortable and confident and at ease to be able to check in with our body and not default and focus all externally on the other person or potentially leave ourselves and dissociate and how to find that way. And the practice of titration, which is a somatic principle of like small doses to ease in and out. That is also really useful too, because often when it comes to intense moments and saying like, oh yeah, just be embodied and you'll be right. It's like, that's not realistic either. And so it's how do we ease in and and practice in small doses in small moments so that we can build that capacity and be able to feel like, oh, wow, okay, I have the capacity of my nervous system for resilience and to feel safe in this moment. And therefore, to be able to combine that with being aware of what's happening in my body, too. And then layer that with articulating to someone else what that is and trying to capture those feelings and those desires and navigating that dynamic. So, there's a lot in there, and we do need to practice. We all deserve to have the space to practice and to feel like we're encouraged in that.
0: The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store – we combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalized recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best. So whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalized selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone. So visit becoming.me, Becoming Spelt, B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. It's interesting, obviously, because we live in this kind of very sex-positive environment now where that message is really being sold to people Mm -hmm. that know what you want and be able to ask for it and Yeah, that it doesn't seem quite that straightforward to me to be like, Yeah, I know what I want, give it to me, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's a little bit of a like individualism washing that is a new term I just made up right then. But, like, in a society of capitalism and the glorification of individualism and self reliance, it kind of can extend to those conversations and beliefs of, Oh, yeah, you know what you want you go and get it like you're gonna be the master of your own destiny and it's like actually there's a lot more at play with that and a lot more noticing and unlearning that comes with that moment to moment while we're also learning at the same time so yeah I totally agree it can bypass or like skip a whole step of how to just like be gentle with ourselves while we do fumble
0: I guess it's it's like as you get older, your capacity to learn new languages gets mm. harder, right? This isn't a language we've ever learned. Most mm. <laughs> people who haven't been given good access to information and, and tools. Mm. And like that.
1: oh, that's yeah. a beautiful way of putting it.
0: That's what I try to remind myself. <laughs>
1: I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it it makes it less sexy. People want to be like, oh, sex, what's the quick tip? Like, what are the five things I can do to spice up my sex life? And I'm like, well, first of all, not interested in talking about that. Second of all, unfortunately, it's a slower, less sexy answer. Practice, practice, practice. Often people don't want to hear that, but...
0: Mm. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah,
1: the unsexy <laughs> reality of sex.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess what advice do you have for people that are looking to build resilience in looking to have their desires met, basically, when they're going through the experience that you've just outlined? Because mm. that's a lot of emotional work to go through.
1: Yeah, I wonder about this a lot. And I feel like I don't have a clear answer to it. Something I've been focusing on a lot in the last year is how to create more interrelational spaces when it comes to pleasure. So I hosted a six-month group where I didn't teach at all. I just facilitated space for people to talk about different topics around pleasure so that we could realize that, oh, what I'm struggling with, a lot of people are struggling with, or, oh, What I'm struggling with, no one else has understood, but at least they can empathize with my experience and create just more interrelational community building way. Because often when we talk about sex, it's, as we were talking about, very individual. It's either alone, it's with lovers and partners, it's with maybe a couple of friends if you feel comfortable, but not even that, it's often very filtered of like, oh, yeah, I still feel as though I need to put on a front or a performance of me having really good sex life and everyone feels as though they're struggling alone. And so I think that resilience comes from interrelational care and realising that even just talking about sex is radical, deeply radical. And we think that we live in such a sex-positive society nowadays because there's like censored Instagram accounts that talk about sex, but it's it's not really bringing it into bigger conversations. And so I think that often when it comes to resilience, it's how can we build that interrelationally and communally? And that is where my thoughts and thinking and imagining and hope, like the practice of hope and building hope for a more sex-positive I don't love that term, to be honest, sex positive, but like sex encouraging, pleasure encouraging, pleasure-centered society, that that resilience comes through relationships that aren't just sexual relationships.
0: Yeah, we had a a conversation with a woman a while ago and Mm -hmm. she operates in the kink community and she veers more towards the term sex neutral because sort of, desires should be able to exist just as they are. They don't need a label of negative or positive. Like mm. that is that is contributing to this sort of binary that we totally. love to put in all the time anyway. Yeah. Um, and I really loved that as a way of expressing it where it's you're kind of also neutralizing some of the bullshit that can come with when you start to talk about these things. So I think it possibly makes it easier for others to engage with as well that aren't wanting this really like positive kind mm. of message coming with it. Yeah. I find it a bit disturbing sometimes the way we talk about sex just how, how trivial we make it we're happy to tell embarrassing stories but we're not necessarily that happy to speak about how we actually feel about it which mm-hmm. is surely the more important part, right?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the like body positivity movement that has moved into the more body neutrality movement is a nice mm. framing for mm pleasure and sex and yeah I still feel like it lacks yeah something so you've given me food for thought and I appreciate that
0: (laughs) yeah I mean I think it's it's always hard when you're trying to find terminology for things right totally how much are words ever enough (laughs) yeah to capture something that's not language based
1: yeah Um, and we all interpret differently
0: and I think this this kind of does just relate back to what you were speaking to before but for sort of partners, lovers, and even friends and family, how can we sort of support people in articulating their desires and beginning to have more of these relational types of conversations?
1: Mm. Gathering, creating space in the name of pleasure, allowing pleasure to be expressed, raising children who have a sense of body autonomy and a sense of consent and a a sense that expressing pleasure is not inappropriate. I teach middle schoolers sometimes, sex ed, and it's amazing to see, of course, how malleable and open they are, but it's beautiful to see how normalised a conversation that if it was happening with a generation older, how awkward that would be. And I think that tone and approach, the more you can create a casual conversation that doesn't feel judgmental, the more people's bodies can be at ease and for them to feel safer, not safe because we can never be fully safe, but safer to explore and express and be messy in their experiences and talking about pleasure and the ways that we can experience pleasure and sharing them like we would a good TV show or being like, Oh, I had this beautiful moment when I was walking down the street and feeling the wind on my skin and just really savoring that experience. And sharing those kind of moments where it doesn't feel like it's a zero sum equation where it's taken away from someone else's sense of pleasure or worth, but seeing it as an opportunity of, "Oh, thank you for reminding me that that's an experience I can have." So the more that we talk, the more that we share, and the more that we integrate these conversations in ways that feel really casual but supportive and safe the better of course easier said than done as usual though
0: I think that does make it sound easier to me right like framing it in the way that you would sort of frame anything else mm. um, say recommending a, a book that you loved or a show that you loved and just sort of not loading it with too much meaning but just letting it be what it is I think is is a really nice way of putting it that kind of makes it a bit less scary somehow
1: mm. yeah <laughs> Like take it, I'll leave it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it would be great to get, I guess your your view on embodiment, how you choose to sort of define it and frame it. Mm-hmm.
1: This is a work in progress of how I am explaining embodiment to myself in relation to pleasure and somatics. But the way I've been seeing it is like it's like layers. So embodiment is the first sort of foundational layer of being aware of ourselves and what's happening in our body and how that's interplaying with our sense of self in that moment. And then pleasure is a foundational layer on top of that, where it's allowing ourselves to enjoy, to be in a state of enjoyment in that moment. And that might be either persisting a state of being like, oh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. Or it might be, oh, I'm going to, do this action to have this need or this desire met and therefore experience pleasure. And then I think about uh, the layer on top of that is savoring because often we can be experiencing pleasure, but we're not necessarily fully present to it and fully enjoying and pausing to swim in the moment and the experience of it. And we can be still going through the emotions even when we're experiencing pleasure. And so it's embodiment and then pleasure and then savoring. And that's the sort of sandwich, cake, whatever we want to say, of how I've been explaining the interrelations between those three things. And then somatics, often people think about somatics as just being body-based, which I, I think, unfortunately, is just a restriction of language. Whereas soma, which is the etymology, is Greek, and it means whole self, basically. So it's the interrelation of the physical body, the moods, the mind, the spirit, and however we view ourself as a whole in that moment. And so they all interplay, and I think they're often used in similar realms, those words, but they are also very different when it comes to the nuance and the details.
0: That's a really beautiful summary. I love the idea of the layers. I haven't heard it articulated that way before, and I think that's really, really nice.
1: Yeah, that's birthed out of my many hours of yeah. anguishing of how to capture that in a book. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I was going to say, it sounds very well thought out and crafted.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> Thank <next> you. <laughs> trying over here, trying. <laughs>
0: And this is a really big question, this next one. What are sort of the largest social structures that impact how we relate to our experiences of pleasure?
1: As we spoke about in terms of shaping, there is the individual, there is like the intimate relationships, whether that be family or sort of chosen family or intimate friendships. I think there's community, there's institutional, there's structural, and then there's like, landscape spirit spirituality and all of those are shaping us moment to moment but also have shaped us intergenerationally say for example within the like structural forces there is many different things and we're going through a big time of understanding the structures of oppression the invisible forces that have shaped us have shaped our desires have shaped our sense of self and realizing that so many of them are social constructs, like gender, for example. Being like, holy shit, I just acted throughout my entire life in this way that I'm realizing I inherited. Does this align with me? And some people will be like, yeah, actually, it does feel really good. Now I've realized that it's something I've inherited, but actually suits, whereas other people will be like, oh, wow, there's more choices and more options. And so I think there's huge scale things that we take for granted as being the norm or being the only choice and the only option. And so that's why I think it's really important to just gently interrogate those things in our lives. And then I think that there is this like Cartesian mind over matter. I think therefore I am thinking when it comes to sense of self that has really impacted our modern understanding of ourselves and body and pleasure. And there is various historical forces in that. I think there's also like Victorian era, like medicalization of our bodies and seeing them as something separate to ourselves. There's the lionizing and the revering of spirit and mind and space beyond earth as being more interesting, more exciting, and deserving more reference than the body, and this like hierarchy that comes with that. And I have come to realize that the way that I would describe my spirituality is that my spirituality is mundanity. And often we think about the word mundanity as being something boring, and the etymology of it basically just means of the earth for me that really captures that disconnection and captures that disembodied society and how we're disembodied from ourselves. We're disembodied from the planet and the earth and our surroundings and the details and constantly looking up and beyond ourselves for something more meaningful, more significant, more beautiful, more whole that has deeply impacted our sense of how we connect to our bodies and our pleasure and seeing our bodies as something that can be also revered not just shamed or disgusting or confusing or annoying or you know often hearing that that phrase like i'm just a meat bag which is true but at the same time it's like a very in my opinion and experience a very profound experience is the There's messiness of, of sex of living in a body and exploring pleasure and the complexity of being human. It's beautiful. Hmm. <laughs> You're welcome to join my mundanity cult.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've also thought about like how the world would be different if Descartes had said I feel therefore I am instead of yeah. I think therefore
1: I am. Yeah. <laughs> truly. yeah and I know it was a response to the times that was very yeah Yeah. very important and useful but we've outgrown it and I'm like when are we going to move past that
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly and I think that's why we've called the podcast what we have right Mm. because people do think that these things are often fixed and there is a right and a wrong and a certain way of doing things and even just right or a wrong way to think about it let alone a right or wrong way to act it out Mm. the message we're really trying to send is you know how you view these things is is up to you and it should be you making those decisions
1: Mm. you're interrogating and allowing more options and the non-dualistic non-binary way of just seeing choice and options in how we want to be without necessarily being like the individual is the all is a really healthy, refreshing, exciting way. And
0: I'm going to ask you one more question mm-hmm. before I let you go. We've got lots of goodness in here and I don't want to dilute oh, that by asking sex. you too many questions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is actually something that I more just personally wanted to ask. <laughs> because I think about a lot. Yeah, I've just yeah. been kind of <laughs> you. like, this uh, podcast is for me. <laughs> yeah. After everything I've just said. <laughs> but do you think it's possible to teach embodiment? Mm. How do you think about that?
1: Mm. I want to reflect that back to you and hear if that's something that you've been thinking about a lot what What comes to mind when you think about that?
0: Where that question has come from, in me, I think is you can never truly have a shared experience right like I can never feel what what you're feeling and you can never feel what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So if I'm being instructed on how to tune into my body, how can I be sure that what I'm being instructed to do is actually what I'm being instructed to do? Does Uh that make sense? Uh Totally. So I was more curious about how, as someone guiding people through that process, what your relationship to that kind of reality, I guess, is. Mm. It's really esoteric.
1: No, I appreciate <laughs> so, it because I also think about this stuff. It seems like we yeah. we have a similar inquiring yeah. mind and wanting to feel all the feels. So yeah. I feel you. <laughs> I think that, of course, as you said, it's impossible to know if there's a mutual experience and if your guidance and the language that you use and the way that you try to direct someone I speak very differently depending on different clients that I work with, particularly in coaching when it's more intimate and we'll speak differently to different groups. And so responding to that, but then on an actual experiential level, I think that it's less about trying to replicate experiences that I'm having. Cause I often try and decenter myself in these experiences. It's like, I don't want you to try and have exactly the same experience as me. I want you to use this opportunity and this experience to trust your body and trust yourself more. And I'm just creating the sort of bumpers to guide you towards that. But it's never going to be anywhere as significant unless you have your own experience of coming to trust yourself and to be able to listen to yourself, because that is the relationship. And that's basically all I ever try to serve is create a, a container or an opportunity for people to connect with and try to trust themselves more because, I, in my opinion, that is the greatest thing I can offer someone else and also the biggest impact and lasting experience that someone will have.
0: I really like the concept of trust being central to that because we're not taught to trust ourselves, right? Like our whole mm-hmm. patient structures mm-hmm. are based about stripping people's trust of themselves out of the way. Yeah. So I think that gives me a very satisfactory answer. to
1: <laughs> Yeah. And I think we live in the age of information and experts. And so people are like, oh, what do you do and how do you do it? And what was your 12 steps to get in there? And it's like, actually, unfortunately, that's not the best way to approach it. And it comes back to the unsexy reality of pleasure where you're just like, sorry, but this is a practice and a greater exploration. Of trust and exploration, specifically in your experience,
0: Mm, yeah. And can you tell us a bit about the book when it's coming out, and just what the experience has been like of trying to put all of this into (laughs) (laughs) a condensed format?
1: Mm. It's been a ride. I um, like most things. Didn't know what I was getting myself into. And that was probably a good thing because then once I began it, I realized how humongous it is and how I was saying to a a friend and a peer of mine that it felt like it sucked the marrow out of my bones because I was trying to draw on an experience and articulate it in a way that seems really simple when you read it but actually – Takes a lot of labor to make it feel simple. And it was a beautiful process. It was really beautiful and it was deeply challenging. And the current working title is Slow Pleasure. And part of that is about what I believe we live in a crisis of pace. And really, what's underlying that is that we live in a disembodied society and therefore disconnected from what our potential options and choices are moment to moment. The way that it is, is building on embodiment and pleasure and savoring and how to integrate that not just into sex, but into all types of pleasure. Often we think about pleasure as being sexual pleasure only, but really broadening that idea that we can actually experience pleasure in any moment if we stop to realize and pause and see what are my options and choices? How can I bring more pleasure into this moment? That's the general gist of it, subtitles still in the works of how to capture that, (laughs) and it's coming out in Australia, New Zealand, UK, and the USA in probably April or May of 2022, but exact date to be confirmed.
0: That's very exciting and a huge achievement.
1: (laughs) thank you
0: like trying to get the script done would not be not be an easy thing
1: thank you yeah i appreciate that
0: yeah it's just practicing what you're preaching is right (laughs) (laughs) trying trying big thank you for listening to the philosophy of sex and a big thank you to my guest euphemia russell you can visit euphemia's website at i for courses coaching writings and the imminent announcement of their book let us know which are the full-length interviews you'd like to hear from season one you can find us on instagram at becoming.me And visit our site for tailored sex toys and personalised packs delivered to your door. Thanks to Zoltan Fetchow, who edited this episode and wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.